1: The Australia-China relationship over recent decades has delivered enormous benefits to Australia, to China, and the relationship, the growth in trade and commerce and activity that has seen the rise of China's economy has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, not just in China, but right across the region. And we want to see that type of growth continue, but continue in an environment of stability and respect, not just for each other's sovereignty, but the sovereignty of each of the other nations within our region.
0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm here today with Simon Birmingham, the trade, tourism... and investment. portfolio. <laughs> 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 anyway, Simon's with me in the studio. Of course, you're with Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia. Now, there's so much, actually, that we need to talk about today. It's sort of hard to know where to start. Simon's portfolio is at the front end of pretty much everything that's going on at the moment. So... But let's start with tourism. Obviously, this sector has been very hard hit by, first of all, the bushfires, then the pandemic. You know, it's the first to go under, it'll be the last sector to recover. Is there a case for extending support, extra support to the tourism sector? And I'm also interested to know about what you think about income support for workers in the tourism sector as well people like Warren Inch your colleagues around saying we need to extend job keeper in this sector or extend income support what do you think
1: there's no doubt that there are special circumstances in the tourism industry at present and the very last trip that I made anywhere before travel restrictions hit across the country uh, was through Cairns and the Gold Coast regions meeting with tourism businesses and it was probably one of the most heartbreaking experiences in talking to people who could see The possibility of their life's work slipping away. And it was before the big step up in terms of JobKeeper and other programs were put in place. And it was those sorts of conversations that my colleagues were having all across the country at the time that obviously led to us recognizing and acting that as the shutdown of the economy was occurring, we had to have some major interventions. And that's why we put them in place to get people through these very tough times. Now, We always said at the outset that there'd be a review process around JobKeeper and we're undertaking that and that again involves getting back out there and listening to people, not able to visit the regions uh, just at present, but at least listening to them and talking to them about their circumstances and trying to overlay that against the ambitions to reopen large parts of the economy and to find a way to strike the right balance looking ahead. We are seeing that Businesses are getting back, that people are embracing that, and that states are slowly starting to make decisions around reopening borders. And the best thing that we can do to try to preserve businesses and jobs is to get them back to normal as much as they can. Now, we're not going to have international visitors coming back, but nor are we going to have Australians holidaying overseas. So there's an opportunity there to boost and lift our domestic tourism spend more than it historically has been, and and we'll be looking at all those sorts of measures, but we're certainly working very carefully through understanding what's going to be needed for this industry and for how long it is necessary.
0: And of course, obviously, people won't have the option to go overseas, and you're right to point out that people can actually support, provide their own stimulus to the tourism sector by once the borders are open, travelling and doing all that sort of stuff. But again, to be clear, you, you're looking at support, but do you think that the sector is a special case and it warrants extra support?
1: I've acknowledged publicly the tourism sector indeed was the first hit and, as you said in uh, in the intro, also hit by the bushfires and because of the international travel restrictions that are so necessary for health and safety in Australia at present, tourism is likely to continue to feel the burden of that. And so, yes, it's a special sector now How we respond to that is what we're analysing and assessing at present. To what extent can we truly stimulate domestic tourism to offset that loss of international? Australians actually spent $65 billion on overseas travel themselves last year, international visitors to Australia spent $45 billion. Uh, Even if we just struck around the two-thirds mark in terms of expenditure, you would have the same level of expenditure happening in Australian businesses. Now, whether we can actually get people to do that, whether it's in the right places and the right regions and the same businesses, they're all part of the challenge, but that's what we're working through right now. We don't want to rip support away from people sooner than is necessary, but nor do we want a circumstance where... Taxpayers are continuing to provide enormous support in sectors if there is a recovery option available for that sector, or indeed, sadly, we don't want circumstances where we're continuing to prop up businesses that may not be viable, and we've said all along right at the beginning that it probably won't be possible to save every job or to save every business. And so it is about trying to find that right balance as to how much you invest, where you're invested in terms of taxpayers' money uh, to sustain things whilst equally getting the economy back to some sort of normal footing.
0: Yeah. And there is a debate around at the moment, just in that you mentioned that not all businesses will come through come out the other side. It's just not possible. Australia's about to go into a recession. Not every job can be saved. Not every business can be saved. I think people understand that. But JobKeeper as a form of income support was set up at the beginning to try and keep workers connected to their jobs. There's a debate going on in the government at the moment about whether or not JobKeeper taps out at September after the review and then JobSeeker, the old New Start payment is kept at a higher rate for a period of time to catch the people who are going to fall out of job keeper do you have a view yourself about i'm just mentioning the differences in the income support because it's sort of it's conceptually important do you think that workers need to be supported in the industry in a way that connects them to an existing job or do you think income support is what matters? So it doesn't really matter if it's a wage subsidy or if it's a if it's an income support payment.
1: JobKeeper served a couple of really important benefits and continues to do so. One was maintaining income support for individuals. Uh, another was, as you said, maintaining a connection and employment relationship for individuals. Another was actually avoiding significant redundancies having to occur and the mere cost of those redundancies of businesses that had to carry them through may well have pushed many businesses themselves into bankruptcy. bankruptcy. Uh, And so what we would have then lost was a whole lot of productive capacity in the economy and hurt the ability to restart. And so that was also a, a key consideration at the time. Now, looking forward, it's again, a careful balance. You want to make sure that the incentive to work and to get back to work is there when jobs are available. And I'm sure these are very isolated cases, but we do get instances now where we're hearing reports from employers saying that because somebody's wage is guaranteed by JobKeeper at present, they're actually not that keen to work the shift yeah. that's being offered to yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, uh, there are some sensitivities in the way these sorts of programs are structured that we've got to really think about in how we put them uh, together for the future, whatever that looks like, to make sure that the incentives are right that The support is there in terms of the social safety net for individuals, that the support is there to get businesses reopening. And knowing that JobKeeper is still in place until September, we made that clear at the outset. We stood it up at very short notice and made it as simple as possible in the initial stages for business to be able to access and for people to be able to understand but any future support is going to have to be more targeted, more proportionate, more carefully structured to make sure that it hits the right balance there in terms of that support mm. versus normal economic activity mm, and gotcha. recovery.
0: So it might be something that you're looking at something a bit like the childcare package, in that that is a sector-specific package. It removes JobKeeper as as the payment in favour of other support mechanisms. Is that what you, it sounds like? That's what you're saying, Simon. Is that what you're saying? Uh, uh,
1: no, look, I wouldn't want to get uh, too far ahead of myself or the cabinet processes here. We're, it's an honest review that we're taking at present. And it's an open discussion, frankly, between cabinet members as well as in feeding back the dialogue that we are having with business and the community about how all of these things work and, and how we make what are very difficult decisions for the next steps ahead. The childcare sector was... An important point and it's a good example in terms of the transitionary approach that was taken, putting more than $700 million of additional support into the sector in a way that allowed a smoothing out of, uh, of what had been an extraordinary intervention into yep. it and gradually takes it, uh, takes it off. But it's also easy to say childcare businesses are a discrete unit. And we know who the childcare businesses mm. are. They're all registered. They're all receiving childcare yeah, uh, supplement and, and rebates yeah, yeah. and so on. Yeah. And so that's uh, an easy program to structure. Yes, tourism tourism, tourism is businesses is much more diverse. There are the obvious things that come to mind from tour operators and airlines and hotels but then of course there's everything from the audiovisual supplier who supports the conference market uh, and the convention center there's the laundry service that does the sheets in the hotel so there's a lot of different flow on benefits yeah. to the tourism economy and uh, and they're all part of our consideration
0: mm, well i think the plot is thickened here in this conversation just that, yeah i'm just i'm i'm That's trying- why that's why they're not easy decisions <laughs> yeah, no, no 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 exactly well it's yeah so i'm not i'm not suggesting Testing an, an identical model from childcare is applied in tourism, but what you're saying is you can't actually do that. It's more complicated in that sector because of the way that sector is structured and the way that it interacts with with the government. So yeah, okay, trade, <laughs> another easy. Element in your portfolio at the moment, yeah, quiet, not much going on.
1: No, um, our exporters have actually held up remarkably well during uh, during the crisis. Some of them with a bit of a uh, bit of extra help in terms of flying some planes to get their goods to market. But you know, we have in March and April of this year recorded uh, our two largest monthly trade surpluses. Now exports were down a bit, imports were down by a bit more, which uh, helped create that circumstance. But they're actually on the back of twenty eight now consecutive months of. Australia exporting more as a nation than we import and a lot of that is uh, is to do with a range of different trade agreements we've struck as a nation.
0: Mm. Let's just pull I know it, it sounds insane given everything that's going on to pull trade briefly out of the geopolitical context <laughs> but let's just try right for one for one thing. Now, obviously, China has launched some sort of action against Australia for barley producers. Australia's often difficult relationship with our biggest trading partner is once again in the spotlight this morning, with Beijing making good on a threat to slap punitive tariffs on imports of Australian barley. But again, like stepping aside what may or may not be going on in geopolitics. China has suspended beef imports from four of Australia's major abattoirs, but it's being seen by some analysts as China using trade to punish Australia for pushing for a global inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. China has found yet another way to express its displeasure towards Australia. It's issued a warning to its citizens to be cautious about studying in Australia because of the risk of racist attacks. Isn't it Inevitable that China would have done that, given Australia has spent a significant part of the last decade launching anti-dumping investigations into Chinese steel, aluminium. You know, there's, there's been a load of anti-dumping investigations launched at our end. Isn't it inevitable that at some point China retaliates?
1: I wouldn't necessarily agree that it's inevitable, and I'll, I'll come back to that point. But I, I think it's a reasonable point that you make in terms of not necessarily attaching causality to broader issues, particularly in relation to something like the Bali case where China initiated those inquiries into anti-dumping claims 18 months ago. We could have never foreseen the pandemic, COVID, the debate around an investigation at the World Health Assembly or anything else at the time that this investigation started, but we could tell you that the decision was due in eighteen months' time, yeah. and uh, and, and, it, and and it just happened—coincidence yes, yes, uh, as it's... it may be—that it actually coincided at the time with those uh, those World Health Assembly uh, decisions. Now. Others will speculate in that, and I entirely understand the speculation, particularly given the types of comments that China's ambassador to Australia had made in the weeks leading up to that.
0: The ambassador uh, warns that pursuing an inquiry is dangerous and could spark a Chinese consumer boycott of sales of popular uh, Australian products like beef and wine. The Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, uh, this morning in a statement just issued just now says that we reject any suggestion that economic... Coercion is an appropriate response.
1: To the question of, though, was it inevitable because of our use of anti-dumping measures? Mm-hmm. Well, sort of but a crude way of formulating the question is, did
0: we invite it? Did we invite it?
1: And, uh, and China's system has raised their concerns about our anti-dumping measures. What they have not done, though, is use the options that are available to them to appeal the decisions that Australia has taken through the World Trade Organisation process. We absolutely respect any country's right to investigate claims of dumping, that excessively subsidised goods are landing in a market and distorting the market there. We think that's a core pillar of a, of a rules-based trading system to have that type of fairness and to make sure that you don't have those distortions occurring. And so we respect China's right to run its system and to investigate those claims. Where we then go in opposite directions is that we don't believe that this decision has been informed by evidence and that the claims made don't stand up to scrutiny that Australia's barley producers are far from subsidised. In fact, all of the evidence shows that Australian farmers are amongst the least subsidised farmers in the entire world. They simply produce large volumes of high quality, competitively priced goods, in this case grain and barley, uh, into the global markets because they're just bloody good farmers. Mm. They're highly productive, uh, they make great use of technology, uh, they're at the cutting edge in terms of in terms of things and that's why we reserve our right to appeal this decision through the WTO. We're taking final steps that we can through China's domestic processes first and foremost, but each of these decisions should be made on the basis of the individual merits of an anti-dumping claim, not on some tit-for-tat tit keeping score mm-hmm. uh, basis.
0: Yeah, Another couple, just uh, out of geopolitics, but just sort of straight where is this up to questions. When Trump and Xi struck that deal that caused a hiatus briefly in the trade war. The United States is suspending a tariff hike on two hundred. Fifty billion US dollars in Chinese imports that were set to take effect on Tuesday as the world's two biggest economies reached a ceasefire in their 15-month trade war. Australia asked China, could the deal that was given to the Americans be replicated for Australia? Did that go anywhere?
1: Well, the, the China-US deal is still working through its implementation. What We've said, and we're not the only country that said it to most of China's trading partners, I think, share the view that if China is going to streamline certain bureaucratic processes, what are known as non-tariff barriers in the trade world for businesses to be able to access their market, well, they ought to streamline those in a way that is fair and equitable to everybody. And in some places, China has taken some of those steps. The commitments they've given as part of that stage one US agreement, many of those are yet to be implemented. Mm. So it's a a wait and see in that sense as to how they implement them and whether it's done on that fair basis to everybody, that if you can meet the standards that are set, then you should all be able to walk through that door, or if it's done as some type of special arrangement for the United States, in which case we and other countries would have concerns.
0: Yeah, and it might all fall over in the in the snafu anyway. But be that as it may, just again another tin tax trade question. So you've started or you've you launched this week the process of a, the trade negotiations with Britain on an FTA, and obviously we're also discussing one with the Europeans. To what extent will climate change be an issue in those agreements, given the Europeans' position, as I understand it, is that Australia needs to embed its practical Paris commitments into an EU free trade deal? The UK is similarly, I don't know if they are insisting on this through the trade framework, just because I haven't asked. I don't know if that's happening or not. But obviously Britain is at the vanguard of trying to drive climate action, and will host the delayed COP process as well. So to what extent is this going to be an issue, given that Australia or the, the government thus far has not uh, I mean, has this bizarre? You'll forgive me because you know I get head up about this issue. The, this, the government has a very bizarre position of having signed Paris, which actually has a net zero commitment embedded in it, yet will not formalise a net zero commitment. So, do you expect some pushback from during these trade negotiations?
1: Negotiations are, are tracking well with the uh, with the EU, and obviously they've just kicked off with the United Kingdom. And in both cases, uh, I would expect that uh, that we will make some commitments around environmental measures and that in the main, those commitments will be restating existing commitments that Australia has made as part of uh, other international obligations, be it in climate change or in other uh, environmental matters. My sense that I get from our dialogue with both of those partners is that they're looking for positive outcomes and, and that uh, that we won't find stumbling blocks, that instead we will be able to work in areas of potential cooperation, including in sharing of technology and cooperation for you know, potentially new areas of, uh, of traded goods like hydrogen, uh, as an example. And uh, I think we'll be able to work through all of those issues in a normal way of negotiating and uh, and come to a positive end point.
0: But you don't think they're going to push the issue, given that it's an obvious point of leverage?
1: I, I expect from uh, the tone of discussions to date and the progress that we've made that we can meet, reach amicable arrangements on uh, on all of these matters and that Australia's position is one that is firmly understood. Our targets have been clearly laid out. It's not
0: firmly understood by me, but anyway, yes. <laughs>
1: well, um, I think the position we've taken through committing to Paris, the targets that we've committed to are laid out. Uh, we'll work through uh, those in terms of delivering and meeting those targets, as we always do. If uh, if those topics are raised as part of our trade negotiations, we'll, we'll work through that with those partners as well. But, but I, I don't see them as uh, as an obstacle at this time.
0: But will we work through them in a way that increases Australia's ambition and embeds that in a trade deal, or will we work through it in some other quid pro quo fashion?
1: Look, I often get asked about a range of issues in uh, in trade agreements, climate change, Movement of people, taxation matters, and uh, and often find myself saying a trade deal is uh, is not something that is about writing the rule book in every other area of multilateral engagement or engagement between countries. Uh, We don't suddenly completely rewrite our visa system and create an open borders arrangement uh, uh, with a country as part of a trade deal. We don't go and change our tax laws uh, as they apply in a domestic sense. We don't equally. uh, change in that sense our international climate change commitments. We will talk about them and if there are areas that align with trade policy that uh, we can reach agreement on for mutual commitment, well we do so. And sometimes that involves restating commitments that we've given in other international instruments as a commitment between countries to acknowledge that we are equally committed to those other international instruments. But it's not a case that we suddenly sit down and start negotiating the Paris Accord as part of the Australia EU FTA.
0: No, sure. China, just because we're running out of time, sadly. <laughs> I'll just ask you the poppy question. What's it like to be ghosted by China?
1: Um, uh, I don't, I mean, I don't have time to think about any of those sort of considerations. I get up each day and uh, simply go about the job and you know, the job still involves plenty of engagement uh, you know, through our different systems of diplomatic channels and other discussions with Chinese authorities and making sure that we are putting forward the strongest possible case in defence of our barley growers, as we said before, ensuring that beef producers who might have had an error on their labels put in place clear arrangements to demonstrate that that won't occur again in the future and looking, as we've discussed, to open up a range of other new markets.
0: But, I mean, it's it's a stupid question, but it's kind of fun. I mean, you you can't get a meeting at the moment with your counterpart, and I'm not saying that's because you're hopeless, because obviously there's a whole context, which, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, l- listeners understand the context, mm-hmm. obviously, behind behind this at the moment, but you can't get a meeting with your counterpart. It's all very strange. How do we reset this relationship?
1: Uh, Well, I think the best way to move forward in any relationship is dialogue. Now, Australia's very clear. We're up for that dialogue. Uh, We will happily sit down with partners with whom we have disagreements and we'll talk about those disagreements and we won't compromise on our values and we won't shift on policy positions that are in the national interest. But we can absolutely have open and frank discussions about uh, about those matters uh, that then enable us to focus on the areas of mutual benefit and of mutual agreement, of which there are still many in the Australia-China relationship. And that is where I hope that maturity can prevail and that we can actually have uh, that type of grown-up dialogue between countries that enables us to focus on the many areas of mutual benefit. You know, the Australia-China relationship over recent decades has delivered enormous benefits to Australia, to China, and to the region within which we both live. And we're both going to be in this region forever together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no change in the geography of the circumstance. And the relationship, the growth in trade and commerce and activity that has seen the rise of China's economy has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, not just in China, but right across the region. And we want to see that type of growth continue, but continue in an environment of stability and respect not just for each other's sovereignty but the sovereignty of each of the other nations within our region.
0: But this is the difficulty isn't it? I mean this is why it's sort of come to a crunch point. That of course you know it's it's in Australia's interests economically and geographically as you say to have a constructive relationship with our largest trading partner obviously. But that does require a set of norms that are not always respected. And we've seen your counterpart Maurice Payne say this week in, you know, a pretty significant foreign policy speech that China's disinformation during the pandemic has, you know, has been entirely unhelpful. Like these are serious issues. These aren't just bifo political points. These are serious and to my vantage point, sort of insoluble issues, aren't they? Or am I just obviously having a, an e all moment? Uh,
1: issues are issues are always able to be resolved if there's the will there with parties uh, to resolve them. Well, that's the question uh, I'm asking and, you, though. Do you um, think
0: there is the will there to resolve no, it? No,
1: that's that's probably a question for uh, the other country involved rather than a question for, uh, for me to try to speculate upon. Maurice's speech, the foreign minister's speech this week, followed uh, the action that Twitter had taken in terms of closing down more than 30,000 accounts that they believed were spreading misinformation. And they were accounts from a number of different countries. But it's obvious that those sorts of practices are problematic and doubly so in uh, in the case of when you're dealing with a global pandemic. And clearly, we do want to see an environment where the great powers respect global cooperation and global institutions and the basic type of regard for the way in which we should all operate in this world. Now, that's probably always been challenging to see whoever the great powers of the day are provide full respect for all of those rules and norms, but that doesn't mean we should give up on the ongoing pursuit of it.
0: No, I don't think we should give up, but how do we influence it?
1: We hold to our values and our positions. We engage extensively across the world. And and I think the approach in the end to achieve consensus or agreement at the World Health Assembly was an interesting example of like-minded countries talking through issues, building strong coalitions of support, and ultimately winning over basically everybody, including major powers, to the final outcome. And perhaps it, perhaps if we look back in history, uh, whilst Great powers have yielded great influence, uh, maybe middle powers all working together and collegiately have also yielded perhaps more influence at times than we've traditionally given them credit for.
0: No, well, exactly, given that both of the major powers, I'll say it because you can't, both of the major powers of the great powers at the moment have different degrees of insanity exhibiting in their, in their public postures. Perhaps it is a time for middle powers that does require enlightened diplomacy, cooperation, a sort of clear articulation of mutual interest and it also requires a certain amount of courage in articulating that those differences you think australia's up for that
1: i think australia has a, a long and proud history in relation to our foreign policy and our diplomatic engagement and building strong partnerships around the world we put great faith regionally in uh, of course Partnerships with our Pacific Island family. We put great faith also in our region in our partnership with the ten ASEAN nations. Uh, They are central to the economy of our region. And on July the fifth, we'll celebrate the entry into force of the Australia-Indonesia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, and that will be a long-dreamt-of, finally achieved uh, outcome for Australia to bring closer together Australia-Indonesia relations and to uh, to cement those ties. Equally further afield during this pandemic, we've seen the rise of interesting clusters of mid-sized countries and often democracies sharing information with one another opening up channels Mm. of dialogue that perhaps hadn't been as frequent before and uh, and the opportunity now exists to continue to build upon Mm. those relationships relationships.
0: anyway it's a busy sitting day i'd keep you here all day but you can't stay all day thank you very much for your time simon i appreciate it thank you to my executive producer miles martin and to hannah izard to the rest of you thanks for listening tell all your friends you know the drill we'll be back next week
1: thanks Catherine. my pleasure